Welcome to Igniting Your Faith. At Igniting Your Faith, we strive to motivate listeners toward a full life in Jesus Christ by sharing the love and life-changing force of God's Word. We encourage you to thoughtfully and prayerfully let God's love make an impact in your life. Now here is Dr. Chris Fisher with today's message of powerful truth from God's Word. So today's story is about God's provision in the wilderness. So uh, we're, we're working through a series here on lessons from Israel's time wandering in the wilderness and then uh, conquering the promised land. And today's lesson is about learning to trust God to provide, to do things his way for that provision. Uh, the story of the manna and the quail from Exodus 16 illustrates that. The people have moved on from the oasis of Elim to the desert of Sin. And it's not sin like disobedience to God. It's just literally that's the name of the desert. And a uh, little play there because there is some sin involved as usual. <laughs> uh, in the desert, the whole community grumbles against Moses and Aaron. And the Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Uh, just get your head around this for a minute. How quickly they've forgotten God's power to provide and care for them. It's just a few days previously that he's turned the bitter water sweet. They moved on from that oasis and they're going on in the desert to the next place that God is leading them. And God has told Moses to go this way. And now they're starting to get hungry. Now, remember again, it's only 45 days. It says it's the 15th day of the second month after they came out of Egypt. 45 days since the Passover. Since the miraculous supernatural deliverance from the hands of Egypt where they've been under their thumb as slaves for over 400 years and where they are now, they just crossed the Red Sea in that miraculous supernatural deliverance. They've seen the power of God. And a few days out from the oasis, they're grumbling like, oh my gosh, why did we even eat, leave Egypt? We got plenty to eat back there. And you've led us out here to die. So they've lost sight of God so quickly. Their eyes are on Moses and Aaron like this is your fault. They're blaming their earthly leaders. And they're forgetting that God has led them there. And he's testing them, in, in fact. He's testing them and he's teaching them. He's testing them to see whether they will trust him. And he's teaching them to trust him. And the man and the quail is the way he does it. One of the pieces of that. So God hears their need. He hears their grumbling. And he provides a solution. Now, they're genuinely hungry. It's fair to say that. They have a true need. They've got flocks, but the flocks aren't enough to feed them. The flocks are really meant not to be their primary food source, but for milk and wool and things like that, and for the sacrifices. The system is going to be put in place soon. It's not in place yet. There were many people. There's a census that's taken somewhere that shows there's over 600,000 men plus women and children. So, right, three or four times 600,000. So there's a lot of people and they need food. And where's it going to come from? At least that was one thing they got when they were slaves. 
They may, may have been worked to the bone. They may have been mistreated. They may have been oppressed, but they always got something to eat. And now they're out in the wilderness. There's no Walmart nearby. No giant food store or Pharaoh's warehouse market. <laughs> they're hungry. And they don't want to kill their flocks for food, so they complain. It's your fault, Moses and Aaron. You let us here. Even though it was God who told Moses and Aaron to lead them there. They still don't know the Lord or trust him. To, and, and they only know him indirectly through the experience of their leaders, really. And that's one of the things that's happening in the wilderness. You see over and over again that the people shrink back from trusting God. They've got their eyes on earthly things. They get afraid. They get discouraged. They start grumbling. They start complaining. They start com blaming their earthly leaders. And all the time, God is here in the wilderness teaching them that he's God and he is able. He's able to provide. He's able to take care of them, even supernaturally against all the odds in the face of overwhelming opposition, enemies that are more powerful than them, forces that they can't deal with. Now, he is able. And God hears this need, and he tells Moses how he's going to meet it. The Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. This is verses 4 and 5, Exodus 16. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. You see there? God's testing them. On the sixth day, they're to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. And then God appears before all the people in the pillar of cloud. Now, they remember the pillar of cloud because he came down and stood between them and Pharaoh's army at the Red Sea. They've seen the pillar of cloud by day leading them, and they see the pillar of cloud, and they're, oh, right, right, God is God. The Lord's building their faith by providing for one need after another. And that way they will learn to know that he is the Lord, the true God. You know, as believers, you should be doing this daily. You should be asking God for what you need and seeing him provide it. And then your trust in him will grow as he answers that need. Now, sometimes he doesn't answer right away. I remember as a young man in seminary, I was praying for a wife. Anybody ever done that? And uh, she didn't come right away, right? It's probably a good thing because God was working in me to mature me. If he had given me a rife a, a, a white away, <laughs> it wouldn't go so well. But in due time, he did answer that prayer. Praise the Lord. I thank God for Lisi. See, God is able to meet our needs. That's why the apostles, in many places, they say, ask the Lord for what you need. If you ask God, if you lack wisdom, ask him. He gives generously to all without finding fault. Let your needs be made known to God with prayer and petition, with thanksgiving. Give thanks in all things. Let your needs be made known. Tell God what you need. And then trust him with it. These folks genuinely needed food. 
And instead of asking God and trusting him for it, they were complaining. And so God is using this to teach him, I am able to provide for you. And that night he sends quail to cover the camp and promises that there will be bread the next morning. And sure enough, the next morning the ground is covered with something edible that tasted like wafers made with honey and olive oil. That sounds pretty good to me. I'd like to try some of that. Now, they don't know what it is, so they call it manna, which means, what is it? Right? But literally, manna means, what is it? So try that at school next time. If you're not uh, sure what it is, say manna. See if your friends know what that means. Now, you can imagine their wonder and their delight as they eat this stuff that's simply appearing on the desert floor by the power of God. You know, and this is some of the things that has happened to me and other saints that I've heard. When we ask God to provide and then he does provide, our hearts swell. We're filled with uh, appreciation, not just for what he's given, but for him. Because he's shown himself to be the real God, the true God who provides. That's one of the things he's doing. Amen. He's teaching his people over and over in the wilderness that I am God, I'm the real deal, and I can take care of you better than you can take care of yourself. It's faith building is what's going on. And he sends us through the wilderness as believers in, in, in our lives. It's part of what we go through as Christians. And the wilderness includes suffering. It includes hardship. It includes times when there seems to be want or absence or things are missing and we need them. And God has put those and arranged those in our lives so that we will learn to see him to see the pillar of cloud, and to trust him, to ask him for what we need and see him provide it. Building our faith through those hard times. Now, I, I think it's actually one of, it's, it shows up in the Old Testament over and over that when things are too easy for God's people and he's providing them so richly and so abundantly that they have no needs anymore, they stop trusting him. Like, hey, we're all rich, fat cats, we don't need anything, including you, Lord. That happens rather easily to us in our sinful nature. We can become self-sufficient and forget that we need God when we forget who the blessings come from, which is from him in the first place. Now, then the Lord promises he's going to keep on providing this way. And he gives them instructions on what trusting and obeying him looks like in this actually rather small matter. They're to go gather it each morning before the sun grows hot, gathering only what they need that day, and not to hoard it or heap it up as if the Lord will not be providing for them tomorrow. And the exception is on the sixth day, when they're instructed to take twice as much because nothing will come on the seventh day, the Sabbath, when they're to rest. Now, this is the first appearance of the Sabbath. They haven't gotten to Sinai yet. They haven't heard the Ten Commandments yet. But this, the Sabbath shows up in this story for the first time except in Genesis, of course, where we're told that God rested after his six days of creation. And God promises that the extra they gather on this sixth day won't go bad. And, and that, so they did this. They gathered and those who gathered had enough, whether they gathered little or much. 
Now, there were some doubters in their midst. Some took more than they needed that first day. And the next morning, the excess they gathered was moldy and wormy. And Moses is angry with them for not obeying the Lord's instructions. Didn't God tell you what you gather today will be enough for today? Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care of itself. God will provide for you tomorrow. And so they get it. All right, if we take too much, if we hoard, if we stop trusting God, if we think this is all about how much we earn and work and save up and get our eyes off him, it's just going to turn wormy and moldy anyway, so why bother? And so they just collect enough. Except on that sixth day when they're told to gather twice as much. Now they get there to that sixth day. And this time on the seventh day, the people gather twice as much. And in the next morning, it's not wormy. It's not bad. But some of them go out on the Sabbath, even though they've been instructed not to. But there's nothing there, no manna. And this time the Lord is frustrated. It's not Moses who's frustrated. The Lord is frustrated. He says to Moses, how long will you, and it's you plural, it's you, you people, Will you, keep my command, will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That's why in the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Everyone's to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one's to go out. And so the people rested on the seventh day. Now, notice the wording. The Lord has given you the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a gift. But getting them to accept that gift, trust him to provide even though they aren't working, to obey him by doing nothing except rest, that's something else. Now, this whole incident becomes a lasting with a lasting memorial. They put some of the manna in a jar in the tabernacle to be perpetual reminder of the Lord's provision and commands, including this command to rest on the seventh day. Now, you got to keep in mind the context here. Israel's slavery never had rest. There was no rest ever as slaves from work. Every day, drudge, in and out, under oppression by rulers who wouldn't let them rest. And so for God to say to them, no, Work shall not be your master. I'm giving you a gift. You get to take a day when you rest and do nothing. I'll provide, take twice what you need on the day before so you don't have to work on that day. Take it easy. Take a break. Do nothing. Becomes known as the Lord's Day. If God needed to rest, wanted to rest after six days, of his creative labor, and, and I know that those days are highly symbolic, but still God took a break to admire and appreciate what he'd done and to sit back and enjoy it. And we are supposed to do the same thing. We need rest. We need seasons and, and, and a week, a day every week, and seasons in our lives when we take a break from work so that work doesn't become our master. Who's supposed to be your master? Let me ask you, who is your master? The Lord. That's right. When we make work our master, work wears us out. 
I mean, literally, our bodies start to break down because we haven't taken a break from work. And people get sick, and they have things go wrong with them, and their bodies wear out faster, just like a machine that's driven and driven and driven and not oiled, not taking a break to have maintenance to let it rest will wear out. What happens to your car if you don't get it serviced and take a break from you driving it? You don't change the oil and you don't get the belts uh, addressed and your tires aren't rotated. What happens to your car? That's right, it breaks down. The same thing for us. We are meant, built for rest. Since the rest is given to us as a gift. And Jesus helps put this in perspective and in the New Testament. When, uh, you know, this had become such a law with so many human accretions by the time he came on the scene that it was just a drudgery and oppressive instead of being seen as a gift. And he reminds them after his disciples being hungry are picking grain from the field and eating it as they walk along, you know, just basically getting a snack. And he reminds the Pharisees that the Sabbath was given to you as a gift. It was made for you. You weren't made for it. It's not as if you were built to serve it. It is simply a gift given to serve you. And he helps kind of release them from the oppression of their own man-made interpretation of this stuff. And God does keep providing. He is faithful to take care of them, even though they're resting on the seventh day. The manna keeps coming six days a week for the next 40 years until the day they cross the Jordan River and enter the promised land under Joshua, when now they can, in this new land, not in the desert, not in the wilderness, not moving around anymore, they can eat the fruit of the land and grow their own crops. Now, there's a bunch of life lessons here for your faith, for my faith. God knows your needs. Ask him to meet them. Trust him to provide. And it may not be the way you want it right away. Do you think that those folks wanted bread to appear from heaven? It probably wasn't even in their imagination that that could happen. And yet God provided supernaturally and partly to show that he is God. Tell God what you need. Let your needs be made known and then trust him with those needs. Thank him that he's heard you and trust him to answer you in his time. He has a way for those needs to be met, and his way is the best way. You know, if you look back at the patriarchs, you see, especially in Jacob, his failure to trust God to meet his needs and trying to connive and manipulate to get it the way he thinks he should get it, it's trouble for him over and over. He, too, had to be broken down till he came to the place where he would trust God, even to that wrestling match where God puts out his hip. So he can't trust in his own strength to run away and defend and protect himself anymore. He has to trust God. That's part of the lessons. One of the lessons God wants us to learn that he can meet our needs better than we can. That he's able to defend us better than we can defend ourselves. That he can be trusted for justice better than we can give it to ourselves. Now, there might be some work on your part involved. The Israelites had to get up early to harvest that bread. By the time the sun came up and got hot, it melted it away. So if you were sleeping in your tent, you know, sleeping late, you might miss your daily bread. There is a part that they had to play in being faithful to go out and get what God had provided for them. But it was enough. 
When they got out there, it was enough, and one day's stuff was enough. God doesn't want you to be burdened by what's going to happen tomorrow. And I know some planning for the future you have to do. But to worry and be anxious and try to accomplish the trouble of the future today is a, a burden that also wears us out. That's why the manna he gave them was enough for the day and said, tomorrow you have to trust me afresh. I'll be there for you. I'll provide for you. Keep on trusting him to provide. One of our dangers as the people of God is that we trust God initially to take care of us, but then we back away from that trust and resort to our own power to try to solve life's difficulties. Just like the Israelites trying to make more manna, take more manna than they needed each day, only to see the extra turn wormy and useless. Or like the Galatians, if you read their letter, they start in the Spirit, trusting God. We are forgiven. We don't have to work to do the law anymore to please God. We've been accepted in Christ. But you read what happens to them. They turn back to the law. Somebody convinces them along the way, oh my gosh, you got to be circumcised to get into heaven. you got to do this or that legal requirement from the Old Testament law to get into heaven. And they revert back to their own strength to try to keep the law. You know, the Sabbath is actually a, a, a nice focal point way to think about how we're freed from the law. Jesus says the Sabbath was made for us, not we for it. It's a gift of rest from work, and to trust God will provide even though we're doing nothing on that day, that he'll make our work of six days enough to last for our needs for all seven. When we don't take that work, that, that Sabbath rest, work becomes a tyrant like the slavery of Egypt. It's a day given by the Lord to remember him and honor him as God rested. So we rest in honor of him, but also in honor of the fact that we're made to be like him. If he needed to rest, who are we to think we don't need to? If we're made in his image. But we're not under the law so that we have to observe the Sabbath or else face the death penalty. If you read on a little bit later in the wilderness, there's a guy who goes out to collect firewood on the Sabbath. And Moses is like, oh boy, that's really over the top. What are we going to do with him? God, what's the, what's the solution? God says, stone him to death. Because by that time, they're way in to having seen God provide supernaturally for them over and over. And he should have learned a lesson years before. But also because that represents the exact impossible to keep nature of the law. You know that those who rely on the law in order to please God are under a curse. Because it says whoever doesn't fulfill every piece of this law is under a curse and subject to death. So in the New Testament, we are free from keeping the Sabbath as if it was some kind of legal measure of whether we're going to be saved or not. But it's still a gift to us. Jesus broke that mold when he became our Sabbath himself, resting from the works of the law. We can rest from them because we've died to the law through the body of Christ. So we don't live under the law anymore. We live by the Spirit. It's interesting, Brian, we were actually supposed to read from 2 Corinthians 8. Did anybody catch that? But you picked Romans 8. And Romans 8 is about living by the Spirit, not by the law, not under the flesh. So the Spirit must have directed you there. <laughs> Maybe so. 
maybe so. It's worked out. Because we're not under the law anymore. We died to the law through the body of Christ. When he was on the cross, we who have been baptized into him, we died there with him. We're set free from the law. So we don't observe the Sabbath anymore in order to somehow please God as if this is going to save us. And there are churches who interpret it that way. But rather, we receive the Sabbath as a gift, a gift to take a break from the tyranny of work. Now, work itself is a gift, even though it's hard, but when we only work, that's when it becomes a tyrant. We're supposed to take a break in order to rejuvenate ourselves and also to honor God. So, you see it in the early church over and over again. They're instructed when they gather on the first day of the week. That's their Sabbath, Sunday, the day the Lord raised from the dead. It's called the Lord's Day for that reason, the day of resurrection. Don't forsake meeting together, as some people have, have done. We gather to worship on Sunday to stir each other up in faith, to hear instruction, teaching in the Word, to worship God together, to build each other up in the faith. You know, I'm eager to see us as COVID, I know COVID's always like, you know, what the heck's going on with Delta variant and all that, but I'm still glad to see more and more people coming back to worship because we need to be together to worship God. I mean, it's wonderful that we have you, if you're watching from home, that you can do that, that you can sit there and, and receive blessings by watching worship on TV and, and hearing the word and, and joining in worship. But you can't get a hug from your brother in Christ, your sister in Christ at home and, unless you've got another one like that, a, a believer with you at home. And it, it's hard for us to know exactly what you have going on in your life that you need to be prayed for. Now, again, I'm so glad you're tuning in. Um, but I, but I want to just encourage you that we need each other as the, the family, the community of God. We will have communion here in just a few minutes, and we'll celebrate that as the community meal, our own new Passover in the new covenant. We celebrate Jesus' death on our behalf so that the angel of death, he's passed over us in Christ, and we're set free from the tyranny of the devil and all his works. And you're invited to take communion home if you're not able to get out and, and that's where you're worshiping. But I want to encourage you that part of what communion is is communion with the rest of the family of God, the body of Christ, being one with each other. And we need to come out live to do that, to get the fullness of that. You know, I know that even the Passover, the Old Testament, they would do that in each other's homes. And so there's a, a sense in which communion is okay to do it in your home. But don't forget your part in the body of Christ. One of the reasons we come together every week to worship live and that we shouldn't neglect that. We shouldn't let that go. We shouldn't treat that as if that was optional. Is that here we get stirred up in our faith, in our connections with each other in our common connection to God, because we're the body of Christ. We all belong to each other. None of us is an incidental or unnecessary part of that body. You know, I've had people call me and tell me, I want, we want to see more young people singing up front. And uh, because it, they're part of the body, right? 
How much did you enjoy when you saw the youth Sundays back earlier in the summer? Right? They're not like an invisible, un, uh, optional part of the body. They're an essential part of the body. Each one, every one is. You have a contribution to make towards the body that the body will be the poorer if you don't make it. And they have a contribution to make to you that you need for your spiritual health and development. You know, this is all wrapped in to the Sabbath, the Lord's Day, when we're supposed to take a break from the way the world works. I, it's one of the worst things that our, our country has done, ending the blue laws. Do you remember the blue laws? When nobody could work on Sunday because everybody understood that you needed a break and the Lord should be honored on that day? Now, listen, our country may not have laws like that, but that doesn't mean that we as the people of God can't decide, yes, God, I want to receive that gift of rest from you. I'm going to stop working a day and take a break for you. I'm going to tell my boss at work, I have religious convictions that mean that I need a day off when I'm going to honor God. And you know they have to respect your religious convictions. You can get a lawyer to go to court for you if you need to make sure that happens. And your, your boss will probably have to pay for it because you've, uh, they, if they won't give you that Sunday off, you're violating, they're violating your religious rights. But, but, but what's the point here? The point is that you too need a day to rest. I need a day to rest. If I don't rest and take a break from my pastoral work, then it becomes a drudge and a burden and it starts to weigh me down because it's all I'm doing. The same thing happens to you in your work, whatever it may be. We each need a break from what we're doing to take a, a, a rest and say, no, I'm not working. That's not going to be my master. Jesus, you're my master. I'm going to take a break and be with you. Am I, do I need to say this again? Are we getting it? <laughs> Let me get a hammer. <laughs> All right. <sighs> well, I'll just close with this. The Sabbath is a bit like tithing in this sense. You know, when we tithe, we give a proportion, a tenth of what we have, what we've earned, to God. In recognition that God gave us the power to earn in the first place and to honor him with that portion. And that shows up in the New Testament when Paul says, give in proportion to what you have. Not what you don't have, but give in proportion to what you have. Save it up. Gather it on the first day of the week. And his point in, in doing that is he says, our desire is not that others might be relieved while you're hard-pressed when you take an offering for someone else, but that there might be equality, that everybody's needs are met. Your plenty will supply what others need so that their plenty in turn can supply what you need. The goal being equality. As it's written, the one who gathered much didn't have too much, and the one who gathered little didn't have too little. He's referring right to that man of story. When we tithe, we're trusting God to provide for us, even though we've given away a portion of what we earned, recognizing he's the one who gave us the power to earn it. And faith in him means surrendering that portion to him and trusting he'll make the rest of it go further than we could make the 100% go without him. 
Now, that's a promise you can test. Malachi says this, test me in this and see if I won't pour out on you such a blessing you can't contain it. Bring the whole tithe into my storehouse so there can be food in my house and see if I won't pour out on you such a blessing you won't have room to contain it. Test me in this. Well, the Sabbath is a bit like that. It's testing, tr- uh, showing God that I trust you, even though I'm not working on that seventh day, that I trust you to make my day of rest and my life outside of it go better then I could make it go when I don't rest. You know, and, and there's enough evidence about our need to rest to show that that's going to be rewarded. You know, I, I, I read an, uh, part of an article recently about a, a famous Jewish rabbi, Abraham Heschel, who wrote quite a bit about the Sabbath. Now, I, I don't think he was a Messianic Jew, but he had some insight into what the Sabbath was that was really valuable. And and he said, you know, the Sabbath is a day when we are restored to our sense of who God is and who we are. And when we see ourselves through the eyes of God and we see each other through his eyes, which is one of the things that taking that break of the Sabbath to rest and be with God does for us. That our personhood and our character is enriched from that in a way that we can never get when we ignore the Sabbath, when we keep God as the center of our cycle of life and we take a break to be with him and to be with each other, celebrating each other in him, celebrating him in each other, that there's something about our personhood and our character that flowers and grows in that, that we will not get that treasure, that gift, if we despise the Sabbath. And I think he had a good word, an accurate word on that, an insight into the principle that's going on in the gift of the Sabbath, that it was made for us, given to us, and that we should embrace it and welcome it as a good gift of God and tell people to step off who are trying to take that gift away from us. Can I hear an amen for that? All right. I think that's where we're going to close today. May the Lord add a blessing to his word. Thank you for listening to Igniting Your Faith. Let God's Word empower your life with new growth that encourages everyone you meet. Igniting Your Faith is copyrighted and published by Dr. Chris Fisher and First Church, Schuylkillhaven, Pennsylvania. Special piano music played by Cindy McClelland. You can find more information about Dr. Chris Fisher this podcast and the church at our website, havenfirstumc.org. We hope you will join us again next week and let God ignite your faith.